0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of my podcast, Grit Stories of Resilience. I'm recording this particular episode from Louisville, Kentucky, where I am today getting ready to make a presentation in a few hours to a number of attorneys across the United States who belong to what is called the Federation of State Medical Boards at their annual annual Workshop. So, I want to talk this morning about the Jeffrey McDonald case, the beginnings of it. And on October the 30th, the last time I spoke about this case, I was talking about preparation for trial. So, it's been a month since I did that one. But I want to first take just a minute and mentioned my trip to kentucky yesterday you know i have talked about the importance of relationships that we have in the world and the fact that random and spontaneous relationships that last only a few minutes or even a few seconds are really important to how we feel and all of that happened to me yesterday it may happen to you all the time but it happened to me yesterday when I was getting ready to board the plane in Raleigh to fly to Charlotte. And as I was sitting there having a cup of coffee, a lady next to me was sitting working by reading her book and making some notes. And I got up to throw my coffee away, came back, sit back down. We had about 10 or 15 minutes before boarding. She looked at me and smiled and asked me if I was, Going to Philly, as in Philadelphia. The gate next to Charlotte was going there, and that's where she was headed. And she was going up to visit some friends and go to a football game this Sunday with the Philadelphia Eagles and her beloved San Francisco 49ers. And we had a really interesting and fun chat for a few minutes, and all of a sudden, It was boarding time for both of us. And so we split our ways and went different parts of the country. Then I'm in shock, getting ready to board the plane for Kentucky. I'm talking to someone, asking him a question about which group number is being called. And the lady behind that person looked at me and said, are you British? I said, no, I'm Southern. She says, I don't detect a Southern accent at all, but I sure detect a British one. And I just smiled. And then going through, giving the boarding passes to the lady at the gate, this young girl in front of me was having a meltdown because she had lost her cell phone. And I can't imagine anything worse than losing your cell phone, perhaps at an airport. But she had lost hers, or so she thought until she put her hands in her pocket. And of course, there it was all along. And she sheeplessly smiled at me and said, I don't get out very much. All is these incidents to say that I remember all of them from yesterday. They were all terrific conversations. Some bordering on just less than a minute. One going for close to 10. All interesting and fun. But I digress, and I want to go on to the conversation today about the McDonald case and the heading for this or the title for this is Guilty as Sin. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you might remember that I have done three on the McDonald case. The first one was called Passion and Jeffrey McDonald where I spoke about getting involved in that case a long time ago in the 1977 and going to the apartment that had been sealed for 9 years 7 years at that time located at Fort Bragg and what I found when I went inside and the haunting memories of that that I still have even today and then I did one on in late May on the man who caught McDonald which is the story of Freddie Kassab, McDonald's father-in-law, and the stepfather of Colette and grandparent of Kimberly and Kristen. And how he was the one who really spearheaded the investigation when nobody else would. And then finally, a month ago, on October the 30th, I talked about getting ready for trial. My interview with Lester Chalmers at his home in Raleigh telling me and giving me suggestions as to how I could better prosecute the case. So I don't want to go back over old ground and talk about those stories so much or even the apartment so much, except to say that it was the apartment, the crime scene that had been sealed by the Army for all these years that became so vitally important in the collection of of evidence. The jury went there to see it to the conviction of Jeffrey McDonald. The apartment wasn't gruesome so much as it was depressing. Such an absence of life. It was not a place where you lingered for long. You wanted to see it and leave. Slowly over the months that followed my visit there, seeing that apartment, studying the photographs of that night, reviewing the notes, depositions, and testimony of dozens of witnesses, including McDonald, I felt like Freddie and Brian Murtaugh, the lawyer from the Justice Department. I became passionate. Let me tell you something about passion in this case. It just cried out for it. If you weren't willing to commit your very being, the very prosecution of this case, you didn't belong on it. You know, one of the good things about being an inexperienced trial lawyer, which both Brian and I were, is that you don't know what you don't know. We didn't know the odds we were up against. We didn't know how much smarter and more sophisticated the other side's lawyers were. We didn't know that everyone thought we were hopelessly outmatched, including Judge Dupree, I might add and couldn't possibly win a conviction. We didn't know how much the case would consume us. We only knew that we thought McDonald was guilty of killing his family and that we had overwhelming evidence on our side. My son, Jeff, then just four years old, Became tightly involved with my preparation as well as we would sit day after day after day, particularly on the weekends, in the backyard, myself on a lawn chair and Jeff, we called him Jeffrey at that point in time, on a toy that allowed him to sit there. And he pretended to dictate notes into a make-believe microphone, just as I was dictating notes to a real microphone that would get transcribed for use in preparation of the trial. Jeff grew up not to be a lawyer or a prosecutor, but a medical doctor, a cardiologist in Raleigh, North Carolina. Every night during that fall, I would sit around, talk with my family, around the dining room table and anyone else that visited and discussed the many statements that McDonald made over the years and how I should cross examine him. I was already thinking about that. We tried to think of every way possible that he could not be responsible for the deaths of his family. And you know, we never thought of a single one. The evidence had not been looked at in years. It was stored at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., and Brian and I spent a week there during the March of 1979, just three or four months before the trial was to begin in Raleigh, reviewing the evidence and talking to the many agents who would later testify. You know, we didn't really have an idea early on whether any of the potential witnesses were still alive. And if so, where they were. The pictures of the McDonald apartment were not in any kind of order. We didn't even know what constituted the complete set of the pictures. They were scattered throughout several boxes. No one in the office of the U.S. Attorney's Office or probably in the Justice in Washington thought the case would ever go to trial. Probably everyone alive with any experience and good sense took one look at it and ran the other way. A lot of people thought McDonald was guilty of murder, but no one believed a jury would convict him. I remember reading a letter that a previous United States attorney had written to the Justice Department in the early 1970s. It stated that he believed McDonald was guilty of murdering his family, that the evidence suggested it and supported it, but that his own personal time could not be spent on the case because he had to train his new assistant United States attorneys. And so, with the Justice Department, please handle the matter. I would take entire files home with me at night, one at a time. I would sit up until the early morning hours every night for months, reading and then dictating outlines of previous testimony of every person who said anything to anyone about the McDonald case. And you know, we ultimately found that all of our witnesses were still alive and willing to testify. We could refresh their memories by allowing them to review their previous testimony from the military hearing that had taken place in 1970. We learned that most of them could not forget the case. They had become like us. For example, I remember interviewing the two pathologists who examined the two children. Each doctor was very clinical when discussing his own patient and notes. But when it came to the other child, each one became emotional. Their professional demeanor faded and they reacted personally. Each was intensely affected by what he saw and read. I learned that people were appalled by the horrific nature of this crime. The time span, which had gone from February 1970 to the beginning of the trial in July 1979, could be wiped away in seconds just by showing the jury the photographs. It might as well have happened yesterday. The idea of focus groups had yet, had not yet taken hold American legal proceedings so I invented my own I would share some of what I knew about the case with trusted friends looking at their reactions and seeing what they what took hold I wanted to know how important it was to destroy his character how significant it was that we didn't really know his motive at that time what about his girlfriends did people care they have anything to do with the murders what if these girls still liked him was he a good doctor? Did that make any difference? If he saved a bunch of people today, did that make up for killing one yesterday? Did God keep score? What about the hippies, which he said had been involved? Did they exist in reality or just in his mind? Had he seen them personally and pulled from that experience his description of the hippies that might lend credibility? his story. How important were his different stories and lies about his physical injuries? Why did he keep changing the number of wounds he received? Did anybody care? What did? He, why did he lie about things he didn't have to, such as the presence of an ice pick in the house on top of the refrigerator? Why did he argue the club did not come from the house even after paint samples and wood grain proved that it did, why didn't he just keep his mouth shut? We had so many questions that spring, 1979, but Brian and I soon decided on what turned out to be the correct trial strategy. We would try our case, not theirs. They would get their chance. But if we lost, we would do so knowing that every good argument the government had developed over the years would be put before the jury. We would make them play on our side of the court. Our first two witnesses were members of the military police. They were only two of the ten that we could have called. We wanted to show the immediate condition of the McDonald apartment as it was when help first arrived, Sergeant Richard DeVere was still the first one inside the apartment. Vere was a heavyset young man from New York City who in 1970 was living living in the South for the first time in his life. Richard DeVere is still alive and well. And three or four years ago, we talked by telephone just to catch up. When they got there, the back door was open. He and others walked inside through the utility room and into the bedroom, where they saw Colette laying on her back, with McDonald himself lying next to her. He made a noise, and it was clear he was still alive. The the, the MPs asked him who had done this to him, and he started telling the story of the hippie intruders. And then he asked about his kids. The MPs looked at each other. They hadn't been aware of any children. Slowly, they went down the hallway and looked into the two bedrooms, shining their flashlights at the two beds, and they were the first outsiders to see the bodies of Kimberly and Kristen. The first crime scene photographer had to be replaced after he got sick looking at the bodies. The second one came, and before anyone was moved, the picture was t- pictures were taken, giving us a picture record of the crime scene. We had two agents of the CID, Criminal Investigative Division of the Army, Bill Ivory and Bob Shaw. Ivory was the lead investigator, a careful man with a sharp eye and a keen wit. Shaw was quiet, methodical, always under control at any crime scene, and together they sealed off the apartment. They asked a neighbor, Mr. Kalen, who lived upstairs to come down and identify the bodies. McDonald himself was still alive, though the extent of his injuries were not then known, and he was taken immediately to the emergency room at Womack Army Hospital. As he left the apartment on his gurney, he called back about his kids, wanting to know how they were. And by the way, tell the agents that he pulled a knife out of Colette's chest and threw it somewhere in the room after first wiping it off. All of these factors would later play a large part in our trial strategy. I turned to Brian and asked, why do you suppose McDonald kept asking about his kids? when he obviously knew they were dead. Probably two reasons, Jim. First, he wanted to make sure they were dead. I mean, the last thing he needed now was for someone to survive. Second, it's a red herring to to throw everyone off and fake his concern. What about the knife? You know, Jim, that's strange. Almost anyone will tell you. That in the stabbing case, you should leave the knife in the victim so as to keep the hole plugged until you get medical treatment. Here he says he pulled it out of her chest and threw it away. Why do you think he did that? Why do you think he said that? The knife was found on the floor, Jim, beside the dresser. And it's the one that he says he pulled out of her chest. It's called a Geneva Forge knife. But it's dull, not like the Perry knife. And Paul Stombaugh, the FBI agent, thinks the Chirineva forged life was used to make the cuts in the arm sleeve at McDonald's pajama top. The hole there is consistent with that kind of knife. So what does that mean? That knife was never inside Colette's body, Jim. It doesn't have her blood on it. Stombaugh thinks Colette used it to defend herself against Jeff during the fight in the master bedroom. He had to have an explanation as to why it was there and where it came from, so he made up the story about it being in her chest. Yet that knife is not consistent with any of the wounds in her chest. Brian, when we start calling the MPs, what do you think about using Ken Micah as a witness for us? Micah, why? Jim, he's the one who says he saw a young woman at the corner of Lucas and Honeycutt. Not far from the McDonald home, I know Brian. But here's the thing: we've got ten MPs. We can't and don't want to use them all. If we do, the other side will turn this trial into a farce, showing how screwed up the crime scene was. We don't want that. We have to use Tavir because he was the first one there, and his prior testimony is consistent and and it But we need one more to give it some some substance. But why Micah? I have never liked him. I know, Brian, but I've read all the MP's transcripts and Micah is the only one to say he saw a young woman outside that night. No one else saw anybody. Now, I don't know whether he's lying or not or whether he just likes the fame he gets with saying something like that. But I do know that if we don't call him, they will. And then they will tell the jury, we hid someone from them. If we use him ourselves, we can say, so what? To his testimony about the woman. We don't have to argue that it was someone who was in the apartment that night. Brian said, go on, I'm listening. I said, well, we put him on early in our case. And by the time Ivory and Shaw get through, the jury will have forgotten about him. And by the time the trial's over, he's history and not a big deal. One more thing, Brian. Before it's over, I am going to find a way to make Micah be telling the truth by seeing a woman, yet be able to tell the jury that it wasn't anyone who was at the McDonald apartment. How are you going to do that, Jim? Well, for starters, McDonald has always said that the young woman who was there that night had on muddy boots. Micah doesn't say anything about the woman he saw wearing boots he says the woman he has saw had nice legs that may be small, but he gives me something to say with a straight face. And Brian looked at me and smiled and said, you may be onto something. And so Richard Tavere and Ken Micah, were the first two witnesses we called at the trial. Their testimony on direct examination about the preservation of the crime scene was specific and credible. Micah testified on direct questions from me that he had seen a young woman nearby that night, but that she was not wearing boots. That statement, combined with the fact that I, the prosecuting attorney, was the one mentioning the existence of this woman, lessened the impact of her alleged presence outside that night. Bernie Siegel, the lead defense attorney for McDonald tried his best to show the crime scene was bungled, but he only had our two witnesses with which to do it. He never called any MPs of his own. Did he think we put his case on for him? He was wrong. He should have been less arrogant, and you know he should have been more prepared. The press, and even Joe McGinnis, who wrote the book Fatal Position, writes, that the initial stage of our prosecution was off to a shaky start. Such analysis missed the point. Wade even said this may may not be as tough for us as we thought. But Brian and I always believed that if our case could survive the crime scene witnesses, we had a good chance of winning. But the other side had to destroy us, not just make us shaky shaky for us, was a win. So in 1970, after the murders, 544 Castle Drive was no longer a home. It was a crime scene with three dead bodies. It was pure horror. Military officers secured the front and back doors. Evidence was carefully collected with tweezers placed in Plastic evidence bags sealed and marked. In late March 1979, shortly before the trial, both Ivory and Shaw saw those same evidence bags again as they were slowly unsealed. The pieces of evidence pulled out, identified, introduced in evidence, and shown to the jury in the summer of 1979. Exhibit A was a piece of ash wood used as a club. Pieces of the club were broken off and scattered in the master bedroom. Those pieces fit back into the club, and experts testified that it was once a part of Kimberly's bed because it had identical growth rings, grain size, and composition as another piece of wood in the bed. In addition, paint from the club matched paint found on other objects in the McDonald household. McDonald, you know, had denied ever seeing the club before, insisted that it did not come from his house, and accused the hippie intruders of having brought the club with them. These statements by McDonald were false. The club was an instrument of death, it had broken Colette's face and skull probably both her arms, and battered Kimberly's skull as well. It was found with type A blood on it, Colette's blood type. Traces of blood were found on the ceiling in the master bedroom, indicating that whoever held the club swung it high enough that it sprayed blood on the ceiling. I've mentioned this before, but I, I need to mention it again here. One of the strange aspects of this case is, was that each member of the McDonald family had a different blood type. Colette was type A, Jeff was type B, Kimberly was type AB, and Kristen was type O. It was therefore possible to follow the blood types around the McDonald apartment as if they were links on a roadmap. I'm going to show in a future podcast the diagram that the FBI put together a McDonald apartment with all the various blood types. And if you see the video of this podcast at that time, you will be able to follow with me and see clearly who bled where. And out of that, you can figure it out what happened as close as possible and perhaps even figure out a motive from that one sheet of paper itself. Blood drops matching Colette's type A and also type AB, Kimberly's type, were found on the wall of Kimberly's bedroom. Some were seven feet high. That blood gets there from being sprayed by the club properly as it was hitting Kimberly. Her head was crushed on one side. Droplets of her blood type were found at the entrance to the master bedroom where she was probably struck the first time, which was probably when she cried, Daddy, 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 that McDonald quoted in his story of the events. She must have seen what was happening to her mother, and then she could cry no more. Her voice was all but destroyed by the blows to her head. She was placed in her bed with the battered portion of her face lying against her pillow. She was tucked in, and when Bob Shaw found her and slowly pulled the covers back, he found underneath those covers bits of wood, bits of wood that matched the club and blue-black cotton threads identical to the threads in McDonald's pajama top. McDonald had admitted that he checked on Kimberly to see how she was and to take her pulse, but he always said that when he saw her for the first time, he was no longer wearing his blue pajama top because he had already placed it on Colette's chest. Shaw was careful not to disturb any evidence in Kimberly's bedroom, and at the end of his direct testimony one afternoon, I asked him to come down from the witness stand and take the same sheets and bedspread and placed them on a large large table in front of the jury. And then very slowly, very dramatically, he demonstrated to the jurors and the court how he removed them from the bed, seeing again what he found as he did so. The blue pajama top. Probably the most single important one piece of evidence in the entire trial the blue pajama top. This article of clothing was key to the case. McDonald was consumed with trying to figure out how he could regain and explain the type A blood on it. So he said he put it on her chest, Colette's chest, later further explaining that he was trying to keep her warm and in doing so, accidentally transferred some of her blood from her chest to the pajama top. Let me ask you something. Have you ever wondered how jigsaw puzzles are made? A picture is taken, placed on the puzzle material, which is then cut in to all those little pieces. It remains obvious that the picture was taken before the material was cut. How else would they all fit together to show a complete picture at the end? That same Lotch worked against McDonald's. The FBI concluded the type A blood found on McDonald's pajama top in at least three separate places got there. Not after the pajama top was torn, but before. McDonald testified that he was wearing it that night before the hippie intruders entered his home. He said it had no blood on it when he was wearing it earlier in the evening. If the FBI is correct, the type A blood got on the pajama top before and not after How and when did it get there? There's only one explanation. It got there when Colette was alive, bleeding from her wounds, fighting for her life. It got there when the pajama top was torn during the struggle, when McDonald was wearing it. And his explanation was and is and always has been completely false. And the jury, the trial jury, In 1979, in Raleigh, found that his statements were false. In coming episodes on this, I will talk more about the blue pajama top, the crime scene, the fact that there were 48 non-tearing holes in it. They were not there at the beginning of the night, how they got there, the injuries they had, and so much more. The cross-examination, McDonald, the testimony of Helena Stokely, the young person from Fedful who did not have an alibi that night. He had once been picked up as a possible suspect. Then, after being interviewed by the FBI and the CID many times, a conclusion that she was not involved. She'd gone both ways, both ways, saying that she was perhaps there. And then when law enforcement would talk to her, she'd say, no, I really wasn't there. She would come to testify in the trial as a surprise witness found by the FBI after Judge Dupree declared her a material witness, found in South Carolina, brought to Raleigh to testify in a day on a Friday towards the end of the trial. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. It's very specific. It's very graphic. There's no other way to tell the McDonald's story but this way. Most complex true crime cases are proved by technical, narrow evidence, which ties tightly a bow or ribbon around the evidence so that the defendant simply cannot escape. No matter how eloquent he might be, no matter how handsome he might be, no matter the fact that he was a medical doctor, no matter that he was in the Army, a captain assigned to the Green Beret, it just won't work. Even though this was 1979, Society really hadn't changed as much as it has today. It was tough for us, but in the end, the jury, as juries often do, in their collective wisdom, figured it all out and voted to convict. Thanks very much, and I look forward to seeing you next Monday, well into December by that time and hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, please come back and listen again next week and click the follow button, if at all possible. Thanks, and see you soon.